I think that we are just seeing the beginning of a very difficult historical period in the global economy. Perhaps a lesson learned from previous shocks, although we haven't experienced a shock as profound and as global as this one, is that you shouldn't do stupid things. We do think that in the midst of all of that, there will be quite a bit of opportunity for uh, clean energy technology. Frankly, coming into this, there were a lot of people who did not believe in climate change and still don't. And I take that as a proxy for not really believing in the fundamental tenets of science. And if you were whistling past the graveyard and, and sort of saying, oh, this whole thing is a hoax and it's not real and it's, you know, and it's been cooked up by the left wing media or whatever. Well, frankly, sadly, if you've lost a loved one or a friend, then it is a reminder to you that science is real and sometimes it can come along and really bite you in the ass. The coronavirus outbreak continues to loom large over the world. Here in the U.S., the Surgeon General warned this week would be the country's Pearl Harbor moment in combating the pandemic. Across the globe, countries now face major challenges as consumer demand contracts, employee payroll is cut, and capital shrinks as billions of people remain in quarantine. The combination of an economic downturn, cheap oil and gas, and global supply chain disruptions will have big consequences for clean energy development and climate action. But is it all bad news? To get a grip on the situation, we bring you insights from four leading energy and climate experts in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. I hope everyone out there is healthy and doing well under the circumstances, the circumstances being COVID-19. It's so hard to talk about anything but this issue. Take the oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. It's not just a geopolitical spat. It's a conflict being driven by the rapid decline in oil demand due to the pandemic. As we'll touch on later in the show, oil and gas producers met with President Trump at the White House last week to discuss policies that could prop up the domestic industry as it struggles with the price crash. But oil and gas companies are hardly the only ones hurting. The U.S. solar industry says it stands to lose up to half of its workforce, or 125,000 people, due to coronavirus disruptions. U.S. wind and energy storage industries are projecting large job losses as well. That is, unless Congress passes some form of policy support. Meanwhile, the COP26 climate talks scheduled to take place this fall in Glasgow have been postponed till 2021, raising concerns that governments will put boosting climate commitments on the back burner. There's also an election going on. I'm recording this shortly after Senator Bernie Sanders announced he's pulling out of the Democratic primary, raising questions about where climate will rank in the presidential election. Earlier this week, I moderated a virtual event for the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center on the implications of COVID-19 for clean energy and climate action. And I'm excited to bring this conversation to our podcast feed. In a moment, you'll hear from Ethan Zindler, head of America's for Bloomberg New Energy Finance as well as Rachel Kite, former CEO and Special Representative of the UN Secretary General for Sustainable Energy for All and current Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and Rich Powell, Executive Director at the ClearPath Foundation, a nonprofit organization working to develop and advance conservative policies that accelerate clean energy innovation, and Adnan Amin, former Director General of the International Renewable Energy Agency and Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center. 
We discuss what the pandemic could mean for specific low-carbon technologies, as well as domestic stimulus policies and international climate talks. No one has a crystal ball, but I think these speakers do an excellent job of sharing data and experiences to explain how things could shake out. This conversation has been lightly edited for clarity and flow. Note, you'll also hear me weave in questions from audience members in the second half of the show. Thanks again to the Atlantic Council for sharing this content with us. Here is the conversation. This episode is brought to you with support from EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum that aims to educate and inspire action toward a more sustainable future. This year's EarthX 2020 event is now completely online. There's tons of content on the virtual agenda. For instance, there's the EarthX eCapital Summit, which convenes financiers, startups, industry thought leaders, policymakers, incubators, and more to catalyze investment into environmental solutions. This year's eCapital Summit is all digital and available at no charge. Building a better future isn't canceled. Head over to earthx.org for more information. As part of the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center's ongoing coronavirus coverage, we're honored to be joined today by an expert panel for a timely discussion on clean energy and climate impacts of COVID-19 and the oil price fallout. I'm going to ask each speaker to give brief opening remarks, starting with Ethan Zindler at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. First, I just want to take a quick moment to thank everyone in the medical community for working tirelessly to keep us safe, as well as frontline workers such as supermarket cashiers and truck drivers for keeping us fed, and utility workers who are working to keep our power on and our water running. We owe an immense debt of gratitude to you all. Now, Ethan, the floor is yours. Thanks, Julia, and hi, everybody, and welcome to my attic. Um, and thanks for the opportunity today um, to you, Julia, and to Randy with Atlantic Council and everybody. And I would just certainly echo your comments uh, about our deep gratitude for those who are helping keep the lights on uh, in this, uh, this very challenging time. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, from the perspective of Bloomberg NEF uh, for a few minutes today just to kick us off. Bloomberg NEF, for those who don't know, is a division of Bloomberg that does energy market research uh, with a particular focus often on clean energy technologies. Uh, and I'm going to start um, really mainly by talking about renewable energy uh, and electric vehicle impact that we've seen to date. Uh, Obviously, these are challenging times for the clean energy sector. Uh, that makes it no different really than many other segments of the economy overall. Uh, and from my perspective as an analyst and, a, and manager of analysts, our challenge is to try to understand what uh, the COVID-19 uh, impact will be on the sector, obviously in the short term and then going forward. The challenge for us, of course, is we're not macroeconomists. It's very hard for us to understand sort of the level of severity um, that we're going to see. So I'm going to caveat all my comments with, with one fairly substantial assumption, which is that um, we assume that this is a severe uh, impact on the industry that lasts uh, about three months per market um, and that um, the expectation would be that the economy would start to come back to life sometime in the fourth quarter. Um, obviously, there are, are enormous unknowns and that's one, only one scenario, but I did want to preface that because I think um, there are a lot of things that we're going to have to see how this all plays out. But most of my comments today are going to be, be based on that uh, fundamental um, assumption. 
I'm also going to talk mainly about the OECD countries because I know Rachel's fantastic about talking about non-OECD stuff. And I'm mostly going to talk about conventional technologies because Rich, I think, can cover some of the stuff that's uh, a little more out there and coming in terms of zero carbon uh, tax. The way we see it, there's really three timeframes to look at. One, which is the immediate uh, current situation that we're in literally right now. There's the short-term situation through 2020, and then there's the medium to long-term 2021 and 2020, 2021 and beyond. Right now, as I speak, um, we are already seeing major disruptions uh, uh, that COVID is causing in the clean energy sector, uh, both on the supply side in terms of the availability of goods and services, um, and now on the demand side. Uh, and when this uh, really first kicked off in China, um, we thought that this was a both a supply and a demand side problem uh, for the market in China alone, but a supply side problem really for the rest of the world because China is such a major supplier of, of in particular, um, equipment used in solar and batteries and electric vehicles. However, obviously, with, uh, with the change in circumstances uh, and, and shelter-in-place orders in a number of countries, uh, it is becoming very much of a demand-side phenomenon as well. If you look at Italy, Spain, other parts of the world, obviously, the United States, um, we've seen uh, electricity demand um, come, come down very sharply uh, in the short run. And, of course, the question, which I think Julie will probably get to later, is, is this just a short-term uh, issue or is it something um, you know, much more substantial uh, longer term? Uh, to put things in a little bit of context, globally, we thought that this year was going to be a record uh, uh, for overall uh, wind and solar build with somewhere around 200 to 225 gigawatts of wind and solar to be built in 2020. Um, we now conservatively think that number is going to be 175 to 210, probably though on the lower end of that. Um, so if you if you say it's 175, then you're looking at about 23% less than what we had been expecting. Um, although it is worth noting there was about 180 gigawatts installed last year, so you would still be talking about a, a year that wasn't that different from 2019. However, obviously, uh, we will have to wait and see how things unfold and the level of disruption that we see um, that goes on throughout the year. For electric vehicles in particular, um, there are about 2 million of them sold. And, uh, you know, for this year, um, already we've seen major disruptions in demand for cars overall. And in particular in China, which is the largest demand market for cars, sales were off 45% in January and February. Uh, we also saw drops in Korea, Japan, and India. And no doubt sales are down now here in the U.S. and in Europe as well. So that is going to fundamentally uh, hurt electric vehicle sales overall. We can talk also a little bit more maybe later about the impact of a lower oil price, but I don't think it's worth even getting to that level of nuance quite yet because more fundamentally, people just aren't buying cars, and that's hurting electric vehicle sales um, overall. I'm going to finish with just a couple of quick comments about the U.S. because um, the U.S. is obviously a very interesting uh, encapsulation of a lot of the phenomenons uh, that we've seen around the world. But last year, we at BNEF counted about $55 billion um, deployed into the clean energy sector in the U.S. to build mostly to build wind and solar. That was a record um, by far. And coming into this year, we were expecting a record for a new clean uh, energy build in the U.S. with about 27 gigawatts to be installed, about 14 of which we thought would be solar, about 13 wind. We now already are revising that down to assume it'll be about 22 gigawatts in total with about a split even of 11 and 11. That's about 19% than we had been anticipating. 
The wind sector in particular is one I think that we keep an eye on. Um, this was going to be an extremely busy year for wind um, with an important deadline on a step down of the tax credit coming at the end of this year uh, and a lot of time pressure on developers to get projects done and completed by the end of the year. The last thing that they needed was any kind of a disruption in the supply chain and the lack of availability of labor in any cases. Uh, and so we definitely think this is going to be, this already is calling, causing challenges and um, the deadline at the end of the year is definitely problematic. The same is true to some lesser degree uh, for solar uh, on the utility scale. Um, but on the solar residential side, I think it's worth pausing and talking about that for just a moment because you're talking about a business where a lot of the marketing is literally people going door to door to promote and sell their services. Obviously, in a near, in a, you know, in a period we're in where they, where people literally, uh, you know, are not allowed to go out, um, this directly hurts the business model of a lot of the residential installers, and we do think that that segment of the market is going to take a, a pretty substantial hit. And then, lastly, on electric vehicles in the U.S., um, we had thought, um, you know, three weeks ago, if you'd asked me, or maybe a month ago, if you'd asked me we would have thought that electric vehicle sales in the U.S. would have been roughly even with where they were last year, which was about 300,000. But obviously, um, you know, people, like I said earlier, people aren't buying cars, uh, and this is something we think is going to hurt. And on top of that, um, there were other factors that were um, contributing to it to not necessarily going to be a great year for electric vehicle sales in the U.S. anyway, uh, involving the capping out of tax credits that were available, available for, for certain manufacturers. So that's kind of a quick um, sort of hopefully in a nutshell view of where we think things stand, like I said, with the giant caveat that um, our frankly hope and expectation is that this is only a three month um, uh, disruption, um, a, a serious one, don't get me wrong, but that we see some kind of um, a return to norm some kind of time in the fourth quarter of the year. If it's not, obviously, those are numbers, you know, we'll have to revisit these numbers just like everybody will for whatever industry that they're covering. Uh, with that, I'll give it back to you, Julia. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, great. Dean Kite, I'd like to have you go next, please. Thank you. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here, and it's always good to follow uh, Ethan. Um, I would add a caveat to those that he offered, which is um, I think the the way in which we bounce back will will be determined a lot by the role that the state decides to play in helping countries uh, uh, bounce back. That's a domestic decision for OECD countries and for, develop, for the developing world. It is a domestic decision, but it's also a decision of the international sort of economic apparatus and the extent to which that is going to be able to come in and, and help uh, build resilience. So we are in a unprecedented crisis. Um, we are in the teeth of thinking through what the relief is that has to happen at this time. And of course, the next stage is then the recovery. And that's where I think the role of the public sector in uh, vis-a-vis to the energy sector, but also all other sectors of the economy will be interesting to watch. If we do this right, um, then we also need to use that recovery as a way in which to build resilience into, our, into the economy overall. And the energy systems will be a very big part of that going forward. There's a lot being said about this crisis and what we can learn in uh, this crisis for the other crises that we we, we uh, face. And we know that the energy system was already on a process of revolution, of digitalization, of decentralization, of decarbonization. And in each of those 
actually there is much to be hopeful for that the energy systems will be able to be a driver of uh, the recovery as well as being very clear what kinds of assistance we need to the energy sector but there's also some weaknesses therein and for example Ethan talking about um, uh, the off-grid solar market I mean distributed energy will be uh, badly hit by the current lockdown and yet is a very very big part of the resilience that energy systems need going forward. So I think that uh, there's been a lot of discussion around what kind of recovery do we have in the energy sector and where do we put the finger of the state? How do we tilt uh, the balance? Um, another adage and perhaps a lesson learned from previous shocks, although we haven't experienced a shock as profound and as global as this one, is that you shouldn't do stupid things. And so for uh, can you use the moments of recovery to speed up a shift in direction that would give you more reliable, more affordable, cleaner energy for the long run um, and ease the transition, but uh, not use uh, public funds and not use um, the levers of the financial markets to prop up things that were perhaps on their way out anyway. Um, is there a way to make uh, companies more resilient and more robust? Is there a way to help parts of the energy sector more than others? Obviously, we need to have a cleaner energy system than we've had now. And there's a lot of eyes on where or not, where bailouts may go, whether or not there is a propping up of fossil fuel industries and whether or not this is a moment for to speed uh, the investment that we've seen from the fossil fuel sector. These are all questions rather than answers because we are still deeply in that uh, relief part of the process. But I think it is possible to build greater resilience uh, into our global economy. Uh, we're, we can see now uh, across the world um, that uh, some economies are more resilient than others and understanding their energy systems as a factor in that resilience or not will be important to look at going forward. So don't do stupid things, um, build resilience, uh, work out which bits of the energy sector you really need to push forward. And, and I think there is no reason why short-term, medium and term, long-term need to be disjointed. So the job-rich growth that you need coming out of the crisis, where you can support small, medium-sized enterprises, where you can support clean energy companies and the clean energy transition, uh, where you can support the continued digitalization of the energy system so it becomes more resilient, becomes more efficient. Those are all, uh, those can all happen. I mean, that is a short-term and a medium-term package of support, either through stimuluses or recovery bills or whatever. And so I think there is a possible way to mesh a, a sort of cleaner, greener future with a job rich, good recovery program for, for the here and now. The final thing I would say is that um, this has obviously had an impact on the way in which we see global cooperation. Um, there have been highlights of global cooperation and there have really been some lowlights. Uh, the fact that uh, the UN system has struggled to be able to bring countries together to discuss global cooperation and the economic uh, infrastructure, the G20, G7, have stumbled a little bit and found it difficult to speak with any kind of clarion call to uh, what is needed at scale. Um, bedded in that as well was that 2020 was supposed to be a year where we would double down on climate negotiations. 
and those have been postponed. But there may be something good in that. In the in 2021, the UK and Italy will, um, notwithstanding the way the fact that they are hard hit by the crisis right now, they will uh, be the chairs of the global economic governance structures and the chairs of the climate negotiations at one and the same time. And perhaps if we're good enough. Um, this is a moment of, uh, of a new kind of leadership bringing uh, the road to decarbonisation together with the need for a more robust economic governance. Great. Thank you very much. All right, Rich, over to you, please. Great. Thanks, Julia. Thanks uh, to the Atlantic Council for having me and hosting this really important conversation. Um, I'll cover just a couple of quick topics today, and I'll lead off um, in a spot that I think similar to where Julia started us which is to say, um, in, in, in my view, more than anything, this crisis has uh, reinforced the importance of a clean, extremely reliable supply of electricity to every corner of the globe, right? So we know a couple of things about this virus. One, we know that it's much easier to get people to stay inside and shelter and self-quarantine if they've got air conditioning and Wi-Fi and television and all the stuff that electricity uh, allows folks to do, and that's the most important thing. Two, the way to treat this virus is via ventilators, uh, which to my knowledge are entirely powered by electricity in every corner of the world. Uh, and three, um, we know that this is a virus that you know preys on folks with respiratory issues, right? And so clean air uh, is just extremely important in responding to something like this. And so um, it's really reinforced that, you know, to respond to this and hopefully, you know, not soon, but to further pandemics like this in the future, uh, that priority of universal electrification, universal clean electrification uh, with highly reliable supplies of power is just absolutely vital around the world. And I'm actually quite concerned, obviously, both about, you know, uh, ourselves in the developed world who have a clean, reliable, clean, increasingly clean uh, 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 supply of electricity, but but more so uh, for the many quarters of the world that, that actually still struggle with that. Uh, and aren't going to have um, electricity at home, uh, stable electricity to power to, to power hospitals and uh, and ventilators um, as well. And so um, that, that that's the that's the the first point. Um, I do think it's uh, remarkable what folks in the utility industry in the United States are doing to sort of keep the power on. Uh, you know, we're hearing about folks that are uh, literally going to shelter in their power plants over the next couple of months to sort of keep themselves. Uh, safe and keep themselves uh, healthy during this time. I know that in Pennsylvania, the Limerick power plant, the large nuclear plant there is going to refuel a nuclear power plant in the midst of all of this, which is an unbelievable undertaking. Uh, construction continues at the Vogel nuclear power plant in Georgia, 9,000 workers um, on site, uh, some of the most uh, remarkable sort of skilled trade folks in the country that are still building that, um, you know, enormous source of clean electricity. Um, so, you know, folks are doing some pretty heroic stuff in, uh, in this moment. Um, stepping back, second point would be that I do think that this is a this is a challenging moment um, for the climate conversation and going a little bit beyond uh, where, uh, where where Dean Kite left us with you know the the challenges just to the specific diplomatic conversations this year. You know we know that around the world in public opinion, unfortunately, folks view action on climate change is a bit of a luxury good, meaning that, you know, uh, support for robust action on climate change typically rises in good economic times and, and falls in bad economic times. And we saw that in the last sort of global uh, recession. And so I'm I'm hopeful that that will be less the case uh, with the sort of now inevitable coming recession. But I do think that 
uh, you know, we who work on clean energy and climate and innovation ought to be prepared for that. Um, and people making uh, tough decisions um, and trade-offs between these things in the years ahead. Third, I do think that there's going to be significant challenges uh, for a broad array of clean technologies. Uh, Ethan shared a lot of the challenges uh, in the renewables uh, and efficiency space. Uh, I think it's going to be equally challenging in the in the suite of uh, 24-7 dispatchable technologies where we spend most of our time at ClearPath. Um, as an example, in the carbon capture and sequestration space, many of the proposed projects already underway around the world or proposed around, under, around the world rely on the idea that the captured CO2 would be used as a commodity, a valuable commodity, to spur enhanced oil recovery out of uh, tertiary wells. And now in this oil price regime, that business model will be extremely challenged. Um, and in my view, even if we uh, uh, come back to something like the former regime, where actually EOR was, was just about in the bubble, was already pretty challenged, folks are gonna realize how fragile that equilibrium is. And I think be taking a second look at some of those investments. Uh, thankfully, in the U.S., we do have a policy regime, the 45Q tax credit in place, which also incentivizes folks to capture carbon emissions and, and just put it underground, just sequester it. And so it's not entirely reliant on that enhanced oil recovery market. But so I think now the balance of, of the interests and the business models between those things has probably shifted uh, 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 pretty significantly. On the bright side, you know, the continued um, and, and now even lower uh, regime in, in natural gas prices, which is you know likely to continue now for some time, may continue to and maybe even deepen some of the coal to gas switch that we've seen, which has been so influential in uh, decreasing um, U.S. Uh, U.S. power sector emissions. Uh, and it will now be even cheaper to run um, natural gas-fired power plants with carbon capture um, on them. They were already looking like a like a very economical, flexible. Uh, zero emission source and 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 they'll be even more economical still. So uh, challenges and opportunities um, from the crisis. As we think ahead a bit, you know, clearly it has not been time in the latest rounds of stimulus uh, to think about uh, broader measures and economic recovery. We do expect that at some point um, in the next stimulus packages, and we assume that there will be multiple packages uh, ahead of us. Uh, certainly at least one more stimulus package. Uh, there's been a great deal of talk um, now about an infrastructure uh, package, potentially as a standalone, potentially framed as part of one of these other stimulus packages. We do think that in the midst of all of that, there will be quite a bit of opportunity for uh, clean energy technology. And as we look at what's been successful so far um, in, in finding um, bipartisan consensus in this really challenging time, it's been sort of looking at ideas that have already been uh, pretty well supported in some bipartisan fashion before. And so uh, somewhat tragically, an, uh, an energy bill, an extremely bipartisan energy bill uh, in the Senate was held up just before the COVID crisis uh, began and so didn't actually get to a, a vote in the Senate. But I will note that it included uh, 17 major technology demonstration programs, all of which would have to have been completed by 2025. And in energy space, folks will know that if you've got to have it completed five years from today, you better have been working on it yesterday. And so there's, I think, quite a bit of uh, job opportunity and economic development opportunity, construction, skilled labor, um, enabling infrastructure that would have to be built to support that wave of demonstration projects. And again, 80 senators voted to send that bill to the uh, to the floor for consideration. And so that seems like a really terrific bipartisan place to start conversations about what a, you know, energy-backed, infrastructure-backed economic stimulus might look like. And I'll leave it at that. Great. Now I'd like to go to Adnan Amin, please. Uh, hello, Julia. 
We last met in Abu Dhabi and what a different world it was only a few months ago. And it's mm -hmm. remarkable uh, the speed of global change and the impact uh, of this crisis and how it has become global in such a short period of time. Um, I listened very carefully to the other panelists. I agree with almost everything uh, that was said. I especially am so pleasantly surprised to agree with almost everything Rich just said. <laughs> I know he represents a conservative think tank and uh, I'm, I'm really happy that uh, there is such a kind of uh, commonality about what the uh, diagnosis of the problem is as well as what the potential solutions are. And I think that's the best political news we have is that there is an emerging consensus. I also agree very much with what Rachel said, which is that this crisis has implications for how we think about governance, the role of the state, industrial policy, freeing social infrastructure and economic decision-making capability. I think these are going to be critically examined as we go forward and there are going to be political implications coming out of all of uh, what we are seeing today that will impact on all of that. But let me say, uh, I'm very pleased that Ethan was so optimistic that by the fourth quarter, we're going to see a turnaround and so on. But uh, in my view, and having a background in political economy, my sense is that we are in the midst of an unprecedented macroeconomic crisis, uh, that we are, we've had a series of very optimistic projections, which I understand for political reasons to keep people's spirits up. But I think that we are just seeing the beginning of a very difficult historical period in the global economy. Uh, we are now beginning to see projections of around 3 to 4% loss uh, in terms of global GDP this year, uh, without really an understanding of how uh, this is going to play out over the next year. And uh, also how every major sector that impacts on energy demand from aviation, transportation, freight, uh, tourism, hospitality, everything has been depressed and may continue to be depressed for a long period of time as we see certain behaviors that are now being internalized play out over a longer term. I mean, how convenient it has become to do conferencing like this rather than travel halfway across the world and spend most of that time in coffee breaks talking to people you could see at home. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of that kind of rethinking is going to happen and that may have implications in the long term for energy demand. So what that means is that we are going to see a relatively long period of depressed energy demand. We're going to see uh, depressed uh, investment. We're going to see large scale unemployment as we adjust uh, to the economic shock that is coming from these multiple crises. Uh, and we're going to see political implications and I think more and more demand for uh, a review of how governance is taking place and the participation of people in making uh, decisions on governance at various levels. So that's the broad uh, thing I see. Complicating all of this, of course, is this dramatic collapse in uh, oil demand in the middle of a war, oil war, for market share between Saudi Arabia and Russia, the subtext of which is to try to kill as much of American shale production as possible in the time that's available. Uh, this is a very real possibility because uh, you see you know, very highly leveraged, medium-sized shale producers who are now under tremendous pressure as their debts come due. And uh, uh, I think part of the discussion with, the, with the President Trump about this bailout, I, I think one of, one of the panelists mentioned that they were discussing a bailout, is precisely this. 
And the question becomes, uh, what is the moral justification for a bailout for uh, private sector operators who made their bets? Can we continue to have, on the one hand, a neoliberal economic policy of austerity, but at the same time, constantly bailout failing enterprises that made wrong decisions at some point? So I think that that issue uh, will be uh, important. But I, I, like, I, I believe that we will see uh, serious implications for American shield production um, in the medium, medium to long term. In the midst of this, of course, we have the resumption of the Keystone pipeline discussion and funding uh, being allocated for Keystone pipeline while uh, civil uh, discourse is not being allowed in the public space about this issue. So that's not a very good indicator about the future. But in terms of uh, how this has all played out, I think I agree with Rich about one uh, thing fundamentally, which is this shows that the future is going to be electric. And everything uh, Ethan has been saying about the projections on capacity, we've seen actually for the seven or eight years in a row in the world, new additional power capacity has come majority from renewables. I think this is going to continue to be the case in the future. I think that uh, we are going to see renewables becoming cheaper and cheaper. We're going to see enabling technologies like digitalization, enabling the penetration of this, enabling flexibility mechanisms to play a role, storage that is becoming grid competitive, increasingly playing a role, and electric vehicles uh, becoming more and more uh, affordable as battery prices continue to fall. So innovation is going to drive uh, much of this uh, rise of electricity. Uh, I think this presents a huge opportunity in two respects. Let me, I'll just finish with this. One is, how do we get out of this? And that, how do we create a stimulus? Because right now, the two trillion we've done is just basically a liquidity package to keep people afloat. And it's not a stimulus package. We need to look at the number of stimulus packages. Again, I agree with Rich on that. I think that will be coming down the pike. But we need to have a very strategic discussion about where they would be going because whatever we come out with in terms of recovery here is going to have tremendous geopolitical implications because a number of different actors, China, the European Union, will be putting big bets on their green new deals, on green stimulus, green infrastructure, R&D in new technologies. And it's very important that there be a discussion in the United States to capitalize on its inherent uh, capability and lead in many of these fields and not to fritter that way in terms of how this shakes out in the end. But I think it also gives us an opportunity on climate. And I don't think it's uh, because we're going through a depression or, or you know, good times economically. I think people will have recognized with the advent of the coronavirus crisis that climate is an equally, if not more important global issue that impacts people around the world, and that can be even more catastrophic than the coronavirus. That's the messaging that has to go. And I think Rachel made a very important point that our international institutions, unfortunately, haven't been able to capitalize on this. I, I mean, even this year, for example, the G20 is under Saudi leadership. I, I really don't see a big discussion on uh, decarbonization happening in the energy ministers meeting there. Uh, so uh, I think that this allows us with the uh, delay to the COP26, hopefully uh, Boris will be fine by then because all his political skills will be needed. But if we have a resumed COP26 later on, 
where we can actually get out of the rut of climate negotiations that we've fallen into, where we haven't been able to diverge from the same path that we've been on, which has no result. We need a new political impetus for climate, and I think that's possible now. Great. Thank you all for that. I know we had a lot to cover, so I wanted to get a, some opening statements with some real meat to them. As I follow up, I want to ask, you know, Adnan, you mentioned there's some agreement here, but I'm unclear on just how bold people are talking about in terms of policies when we talk about the next stimulus here in the U.S. and possibly other countries. Are we talking about some tax credits for renewable energy, things that are familiar, things that Rich mentioned came up in previous Senate bills, or are we talking about a more holistic resilience investment? Are we talking about investments that have been lagging in the past to boost American infrastructure and transmission distribution and other aspects of the U.S. economy? So what policies are we talking about specifically? How bold should they be? And when do they enter the political discussion? Is it this next exact next bill that's likely to come up or are we talking about further down the line? And I think that speaks to a question that came up about how long you think this crisis will last. Are we talking about a bigger uh, you know, reformation to the economy or is this uh, something that will be done with by the end of the year? So to answer a question from Alex on A, how long you think this crisis is gonna last and then what the response should be as a result. Dean Kite, can I start with you please? Yeah, well, we don't know how long it will last, and uh, there are a number of variables in that, including the the path of the of the continued transmission of the virus, the public response to that, or public government response to that, and, and then the the way in which uh, we think about getting people back to work. So you see now, as Europe seems to continental Europe seems to be coming uh, perhaps past its peak, you're starting to see the conversation shift very much to how do you uh, unlock uh, the, the, the economy past the virus, right? So what do you get back to work first? How do you get back to work? And then what does the stimulus look like? There is an opportunity because we for, for the past 30 odd years, we have really sort of held back in terms of what government's role can be, especially in the in North America. What can government's role be in stimulating the kind of growth and the kind of development that you wish to see? And there's been a general narrative that government doesn't have that positive role to play. Well, we now know that we can print money when we have to. We now have just seen an extraordinary intervention. And, you know, I think Ken Rogoff gave a very good interview about two weeks ago, sort of saying, look, you know, if we're talking about a deficit of X or Y, or if we're talking about an inflation rate of X or Y versus getting your economy actually back to work again and people back to work and staving off a depression, then these are this is not the same debate that we used to have. So you could use uh, this moment to have a massive investment in the kind of infrastructure we need, the green hydrogen and blue hydrogen infrastructure that we need, uh, the kinds of deep refurbishment of buildings that we need so that we build efficiency into the economy, as well as then tilting the balance towards the infrastructure and the smart grid that you need for an economy which is going to be much more dependent upon uh, electricity um, uh, on the back end of this crisis. And then, of course, there's the role that the developed world is going to have to play in helping the development developing world speed up its transition. And there, its transition also involves 
reliable, affordable and clean energy for people who've never had it before. Why? Well, because they need it in order to be grown, but also because their health system simply can't operate without it. But there is an opportunity to um, overcome our aversion to infrastructure and overcome our aversion to um, to perhaps uh, living with a slightly different balanced macroeconomic playbook in order to get that. I'd like to go to Ethan and then Rich on the same question. Do you see bigger, bolder policies actually passing in the U.S. Congress in the near term or not? <laughs> Short answer is... We're counting on you for the answers here. Um, I mean, look, it's... There, there will be another stimulus bill, that seems likely. And the question then is what's going to be in it. And um, or last week, there was talk of it being infrastructure focused. And then by the end of the week, Nancy Pelosi was talking about it being more of a sequel to the last bill and not being so infrastructure focused. And I think obviously for the energy sector, clean energy sector in particular, we would like to see the emphasis on infrastructure. Uh, and with each bill that gets passed, it becomes more politically challenging to get the job done. I mean, the last one passed with basically zero, literally zero opposition other than one, you know, member of Congress from, from Kentucky. Um, this one, next one around will be tougher. And then if there's another one after that, it's gonna be even tougher after that. So you can see why there's a real push to wanna to get in this next package, something um, pretty sub substantial. I will say this, which is that, you know, that. Uh, that they, there does seem to be some concern on the part of Democrats about um, allowing them um, to being tarred with the, the so-called Green Deal. I, it just feels like that to me. And um, um, that, and I, I kind of get that. And I, I do think that if they can, um, and if the clean energy sector can make the point that what, what clean energy is, is infrastructure writ large, valuable infrastructure, long-term investments in the types of things that we need, I think they'll potentially be more uh, successful. And maybe just give one example, which is that I would argue that the clean energy sector, if you make basically zero interest loans available across the board, um, clean energy potentially has the, the, uh, the, would potentially benefit more from that than would fossil energy. Uh, and that's because basically when you're talking about a clean energy project, 100% uh, of the costs are upfront. They're CapEx costs. You build the project and then you have zero marginal costs of buying any kind of, you don't have to buy any uh, coal or, or gas or anything. So it's all upfront. So a zero interest rate pays off the most for a clean energy project. So again, I think if clean energy can get in that and can get in that jet stream of infrastructure um, and the U.S., as, as Rachel says, if, you know, if the U.S. is going to, or, uh, you know, uh, is going to essentially print money and make money available at zero interest rates, I think the sector can benefit a lot from that. Um, I would make one last really quick point, which is just that in the, the last, um, you know, major downturn we had, electricity demand fell very sharply and then the economy grew for 10 years, but we did not have sort of a one-to-one -one growth in GDP and uh, energy consumption. And so I think the hope and the goal here should be is if we are going to have some kind of a prolonged period of less demand, that as we as the economy grows, we don't necessarily have to get back to where we were. So let's not forget about energy efficiency and all the efforts that can and should be made now um, to make that as we sure that as we rebuild, we don't necessarily have to get back to exactly where we were two months ago in terms of consumption levels. And I'm particularly talking about the U.S., which is a huge consumer of energy. Great. So, Rich, I'm going to go to you and add in 
the element of a, of a question here from Joe Bryan at the Atlantic Council. He said, US and Europe are dependent on foreign or controlled sources for minerals and batteries to support EV production. Uh, so in the wake of COVID, do you expect governments and industry to take steps to strengthen domestic clean energy supply chains for batteries in particular? So both answer how bold policies will be and if you see domestic manufacturing for EVs coming in there. So let me, uh, I'll take those in, in two pieces. So first on um, on how ambitious policy is going to be sort of going forward. I'm going to make a projection about this. Um, and as, as Ethan in particular does really well, the one thing we all know about the projections we make about the future is that it'll be dead wrong, right? But so I'll, I'll make it for the sake of argument. And so projection would be there will be at least three further stimulus bills. So there will be a bill in the very near term, probably when Congress uh, gets back towards the end of April or early May, which does look a lot like a sequel of the last stimulus bill, um, which is heavily focused on uh, keeping people home, but keeping them uh, employed and paychecks coming and, and taking care of folks that have been laid off. Uh, that's, that's, you know, not tactical, but, but, but surgical and focused in that way. Um, maybe on the same scale um, of, the, of the last one, sort of, you know, extensions of the Paycheck Protection Program and, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, and as in the last one, when a coalition of folks attempted to insert a package of, uh, you know, clean energy incentives, probably ill-timed, um, that, that won't be really well received. And so I think that that, that first one is going to be a very focused um, package just on relief. I think separately, there'll be a package that is a stimulus package, but it'll be labeled as an infrastructure package. And that's because there's already been a highway bill passed out of committee in the Senate. There's been a uh, big proposal for an infrastructure bill on the House. There, there are sort of proposals on the table ready to go. Now, I suspect that they will be significantly scaled up in terms of overall ambition, but that the bills as they currently stand provide uh, uh, some roadmap I guess pun intended for where that infrastructure spending um, will go, uh, and I agree with with Ethan's uh, point that there's quite a bit of opportunity in the clean energy space um, in infrastructure, sort of in the in the areas that you know we work on. Um, you know, we're going to need to build a lot of pipelines um, around this country if we're serious on dealing with uh, with with uh, carbon dioxide emissions, and those pipelines are either going to carry CO2 around the country that we've captured from industrial facilities and power plants, or they're going to carry uh, hydrogen and renewable gas and syngas uh, around the country. There's going to be all kinds of pipelines built. That's that's infrastructure. We clearly need more transmission lines. Um, hopefully, uh, if, if something serious is done on transformation, it can sort of break through the NIMBY blockades that, for example, have been keeping uh, great, you know, Quebec hydro out of New York State and Massachusetts and all the other places that desperately want that clean energy but are being sort of held up by all kinds of NIMBY concerns um, on the way down. I think there's actually a lot that can be done in pure regulatory reform and regulatory streamlining in that space. So it's it's not necessarily about the money. It might just be about pre-permitting uh, the sequestration sites for the CO2 uh, as it comes in or pre-permitting, you know, corridors for, um, for new uh, transmission um, coming through. So I think that there's lots of opportunities there um, in that space. And then on the, um, I do expect that there will be beyond an infrastructure bill, broader economic stimuli, maybe, is that the plural stimulus stimuli, bills uh, down the road, because, um, you know, I sort of agree with that, but this is, this is going to be a long, deep, very painful crisis. And I think the governments around the world are going to 
feel obliged to, to continue coming in, in in the future. And so I think that there'll be opportunities in, in, in those bills as well, even beyond things that we would traditionally think of as, as infrastructure. Um, and then last, uh, Julia, to the, to the question that was asked, I, I do think that we're going to see an increasing focus on supply chain resilience um, around the world. There were already terrific reasons uh, out there to start diversifying uh, the supply chains for, um, for a lot of these materials. Uh, I mean, just look at the, the supply chain for cobalt and the very well-documented uh, issues uh, with kind of artis- artisanal mining in the uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and, and, and folks wanting to, 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 to get away from um, these kind of sole source, often very problematic supply points. And so I think that that will have call for a renewed uh, focus on uh, mining and extracting and producing um, some of these rare earth materials in the United States and in other parts of the developed world. And there will be a renewed focus on uh, innovative new technologies and chemistries and uh, manufacturing techniques that that find things that are less uh, earth scarce. And you know that might be completely rethinking the concept of batteries for the grid and going after these many other ways to store energy that we know are out there, or it might be completely rethinking what a the chemical makeup of a battery looks like. Um, there are folks working on, you know, organic aqueous flow batteries that look a lot more like uh, sugars and you know organic compounds than they do uh, rare earths being used to to store the electricity. And we, and we did see the administration, the Trump administration, put some initiatives in place to the Department of Energy to try and make some more uh, make the supply chain more domestic. That's right. Energy storage general. grand challenge. That's right. Right. Yes. Energy storage grand challenge and, and other aspects. Great. Um, so let's take a question from Stephen Lee at Bloomberg Environment. He asks, uh, when the self-quarantine ends, people are going to be so fatigued. Do you think that's a challenge to the ad- adoption of clean energy among people who think it's a sacrifice? I'll put that to Adnan. Do you think that the fatigue will be a factor here in getting clean energy policies through? Uh, I, I think that's a, that's the sort of thing that we've seen in normal times you know, that, that kind of reaction. And these are anything but normal times. And I think that there is going to be a very uh, fundamental reassessment by people of how they see the world, how they interact with the world, uh, what it means to be interconnected in the world in terms of a global pandemic or a global effort at sustainability. And I think as uh, more information about the impact of a clean energy transition and its implications for the quality of life, you know, especially if we can address uh, address uh, just transition issues. You know, how, how do we transition people in dirty industries into uh, more better, well-paying jobs, which are which are uh, relevant to the new economy? I think that there will actually be enthusiasm to look at what the future looks like. And uh, you know, this goes back to the question which uh, uh, Rachel raised right at the beginning, which is the one of governance. And I think right now, and this is a global phenomenon, it's not just a US phenomenon, there is a sense among more and more people that somehow they are disempowered in terms of how uh, the decision-making in their country is, uh, is governed. And I think that there is going to be a reaction to that. So, so I think, you know, uh, there's a lot we can do to make that a positive, uh, uh, optimistic type of view of how we do this transition. But it also depends on how we present it. And, you know, when we talk about infrastructure and people think about roads and bridges and so on, you know, I, I ran an international organization, so I had a kind of first-hand view into policy in several of these countries. 
I participated in the fifth five, in the five-year plan uh, in China, in the renewable energy uh, targets in the European Union, a lot of discussions in the U.S. in many emerging countries, uh, and you know every country is beginning to look at this as an opportunity, not only for clean energy, and I've been told this by heads of state of countries, but as an opportunity to create a new form of economic growth with employment. I was told by President Sisi of Egypt, if I don't do renewables, I will have a major political problem because this is the only way I can begin to soak up the youth employment issue. Uh, where a million young people are coming into my labor market every year and I, I don't have any possibility to provide them with a living. So I, I think that's the kind of thing we have to talk about. And then when we talk about infrastructure and, and innovation, let's make people excited about this. You know, The Europeans have doubled down on this idea. They're going to invest in innovation. They're going to invest in their Green New Deal. They're putting a lot of money into hydrogen infrastructure. They're putting a lot of thinking into EVs, a lot of their big Prestige manufacturers are retrofitting. Uh, Volkswagen is saying that from 2025 onwards, they will no longer be putting one cent into internal combustion engine platforms. And everybody is moving in that direction. A lot of innovation in batteries, a lot of investment in giga factories, bringing down the cost of batteries, and the same in China. You know, I've been, I've been stunned by the quality of some of the new EVs coming out of China, which are not available internationally. They're just in the Chinese market. The investment they have in battery technology, uh, Rich mentioned, you know, uh, new new kind of battery chemistries. Uh, these guys are onto the fifth generation of lithium ion, where they have minimized cobalt and nickel unbelievably. I mean, there's like an 811 scenario with lithium, cobalt, and, and nickel. So I think batteries are changing, uh, safety is increasing, energy density is increasing, and there's a lot of stuff happening. So in this kind of framework, where the research and development capabilities, the research institutions in the United States have traditionally had such tremendous global capability and have actually seeded a lot of this thinking in different parts of the world, need to be empowered in this next phase to, and, and you know, I think Rich mentioned five or six uh, new programs on R&D that are being uh, put forward. I think this is where investment needs to happen, especially uh, as well as smart infrastructure, smart grids, uh, integration. Jump in there quickly, and because yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we could discuss a lot more yeah. about the opportunities here. I'm just going to push back and, and say, maybe tactically putting this to Ethan, how realistic is it that the U.S. and the EU will meet their declared renewable energy targets, uh, including states? Will will it be possible for them in this environment in the near term to hit those targets? Uh, That's a question from Elliot Roseman. Yeah, so first, um, uh, you know, I want, look, here, and just to back up for a second, you know, uh, in terms of what, what we at BNF are saying is, and to Anad's point earlier, I personally think this is going to be very severe as well. I think for us, though, the challenge for us is to try and model a scenario. And the first one we can model is short-term major disruption. A longer term massive disruption is harder to do, but to be clear, so that so to, to the point earlier, those are sort of what my comments have been around. But if we are looking at a more prolonged period in which 
overall demand for electricity continues to be lower. And we've seen it like drop by like 15, 20% in New York City, for instance, um, already. Um, then that raises all kinds of different kinds of questions. And I think one of them is re regarding renewable portfolio standards, the state level targets. I mean, ironically enough, one of the fastest ways to get to a higher percentage of clean energy is to reduce the overall demand for electricity. The, the focus all along on our renewable portfolio standards have been on the, the, the essentially the numerator in the fraction. So raising the number so you can get to you know 100%. But if you reduce the denominator, which is the total amount of use, then your percentage of clean energy is going up. And we're seeing that happen in Europe. And the same will be is true in the United States because renewable energy essentially has zero marginal cost once it comes online. And so it will always get dispatched. Um, and so this is, um, interestingly enough, I could make the case there will be some states where they may want to revisit being more aggressive on some of their clean energy targets if this bec becomes a prolonged um, period of time. Um, but I want to make one real quick other point um, before I surrender the floor here to Stephen's question earlier about this question around sacrifice. First of all, let me make the point that I don't think clean energy is actually a sacrifice. Go go for a drive in an electric vehicle and you tell me if the experience has been a sacrifice for you compared to driving a internal combustion engine car. I would be surprised if you if you if you think that. Um, but the second thing is, um, and trying to put some optimistic spin on this um, all overall is I do think it's possible that out of all of this that that consumers and all of us have more of a personal understanding of the concept of resilience and wanting to become more personally energy self-sufficient and so while right now nobody is feeling flush with cash to put a residential photovoltaic system on the roof or buy a battery they might when they come out the end of this process feel like wow you know happens and when it does next time I better be ready for it uh, in a more meaningful way than I was besides just hoarding toilet paper and putting it in my basement. Um, and then the last last thing again optimistically thinking about all of this is frankly coming into this there were a lot of people who did not believe in climate change and still don't and I take that as a proxy for not really believing the fundamental tenets of science. And if you were whistling past the graveyard and, and sort of saying, oh, this whole thing is a hoax and it's not real and it's, you know, and it's been cooked up by the left wing media or whatever. Well, frankly, sadly, if you've lost a loved one or a friend, then it is a reminder to you that science is real and sometimes it can come along and really bite you in the ass. And maybe if we're, you know, trying to take a, an optimistic view of this, maybe that will get people to take a more serious look at climate change and all the warnings that our many esteemed scientists have been making for years now and in many cases have not been listened to. Okay, um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask about the oil industry. We know that industry leaders met with President Trump and leaders at the White House on Friday. Is it reasonable for the industry to ask for assistance at this time? Um, and are there lessons from this kind of interaction that clean energy stakeholders could take away? Uh, take take away from this. Uh, I guess, uh, Dean Kite, I'll go to you first. Is there a role for propping up and supporting the oil and gas industry uh, through this? Well, it depends what you're propping them up for. I mean, clearly the uh, oil and gas companies have great technical competence. Uh, they operate globally, regionally, whatever. They are big employers. They, uh, for the moment, they are, um, you know, 
mainstays of the economy in certain parts of the, the country and the world. So, the, the, I mean, and I take all of the comments about the likelihood of things being in stimulus packages, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six or seven, right? I, and I don't disagree with a lot of what's been said, but if you ask me the question, could they, should they, uh, and would they be uh, supported, then there is a way to support them, you know, with, with a conditionality, which is that um, they are committed to uh, the 2030 and 2050 sort of mile milestones that we have to be on for a decarbonized economy. Um, and that w- it wouldn't just be for the oil and gas companies, that would also apply to the airline industry, for example. I mean, yes, you, you get supported out, but um, the, here are the things we want you to do in governance. Here are the things we want you to do in terms of your fuel mix and your efficiency. And here are the things we want you to do in terms of social responsibility. The state can say you can't have public money. So these cruise lines, yeah, you, I mean, bail out a cruise line, but then don't go register yourself in a tax haven. And when the times are good, it all goes to you. When times are bad, you come to the public purse. So I think that, you know, you need the leading edge of the oil and gas companies to uh, be committed to that uh, that point on the horizon to which we've all agreed, which is a decarbonized global economy before 2050. Actually, you want them to be very aggressive in the next 10 years. Uh, in the midst of this uh, earthquake of uh, Saudi, Russia, roulette, and, and then the coronavirus, crisis. Would, will this administration want to do that? Is the US uh, power politics ready to do that? That's a separate question. But could we? Yes, we could. We could uh, support them to be a part of a technological transition. The other thing I'd say is that um, whatever you think about the oil and gas industry, the fact that if you get a meeting at the White House, you get a, a test isn't, was not lost on a large part of the American public. And on the back end of, of this crisis, when everybody has to be vaccinated, a country where uh, favours will be given out as opposed to a blanket public um, uh, uh, vaccination program will not come out of the crisis as quickly as the one that has the uh, vaccine free for everybody. Well, there's plenty more questions here I wish we could get to. I think I'll just have to turn down our final minutes to have closing remarks. And I'll add the final twist of, uh, if you have thoughts on this, how do you see these issues playing into the US presidential election? Huge question. You only get a couple minutes, but you're all experts, so I think you can do it. Uh, Well, I'm not a US citizen, so I don't have a dog in the fight, but I would... uh, I would hope that um, at some point when the election sort of gets vamped up again, um, these are the issues that that get debated. These were not the issues that were being debated before the crisis. Um, And uh, it would be great if we could um, have some public uh, pressure and some media pressure actually um, to actually have that be the debate. I, I hold very little uh, hope for that. But uh, whoever takes over in November has got, I think, a many, many years of recession or not depression um, and a global relationship, set of relationships that will have to be rebuilt uh, in that new world. So it's a big job for whoever wins. With our last minute, Rich, then we'll go Adnan and Ethan to close us out. Well, I think it's, um, you know, it's a, it's impossible to believe that this election won't sort of hinge on who's got the more compelling case for uh, economic recovery uh, coming out of all this, uh, particularly in a lot of the states uh, that have sort of, you know, become our battleground states, um, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, places like this. And so 
Uh, I think it's going to hinge on who has the most uh, compelling case about sort of putting a lot of those, you know, folks back to work in, in manufacturing and, and heavy industry and a lot of these other things. And, you know, ideally, whatever way we do that, we'll do that in a way that, um, you know, uh, uh, pushes a, you know, a clean energy forward. Adnan? My, my very strong feeling is, uh, unfortunately, this current crisis is going to be very severe here in the U.S. And I think the central issue in the election will be the handling by the administration of this crisis. If people have confidence in that or not, how we come out of it. That's going to be the central issue. And the other is, as Rich says, going to be, you know, are we going to have a job? You know, what's going to be our income? Where is the economy going? Do we have a positive perspective in the future? And if you look at the energy sector, and, and this is the oil question, if you look at the market value of what has been happening to the oil majors, it's been carnage. I mean, Exxon has lost half its market value. Shell, billions of dollars of market valuation disappearing. Uh, service companies like Schlumberger losing $30 billion, $40 billion. They're on a downward trajectory in terms of market value. And instead of looking at those industries that could potentially provide the, in, the employment and revenue generation of the future, we want to double down on defending uh, an industry where the twilight is becoming obvious. I'm going to have to t cut you off there only because we're out of time. Ethan, 30 seconds around us out here. All I can say is it'd be nice if there's a lot of conversation about climate during this presidential campaign, but this is fundamentally going to be a referendum on how well this administration did or did not handle the COVID crisis and everything else will be second by far. And that's where we'll leave it this episode. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, reach out to us on Twitter at Polly underscore climate. We'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. Also, please subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And if you have a minute to leave us a review. Thanks so much. And until soon. <laughs>